You're on go with Detavio Samuels, the president uh, of Interactive uh, One. How's it going, Detavio? What's up, JM? How you doing, man? Pretty good, pretty good. good. Uh, thanks for coming on go. Of course, thanks uh, for having me. We're going to dive right in and go. So tell us about your background, uh, bef- you know, your path to get to the president of Interactive One, over 30 million of revenue, over 100 employees, growing your business in a very tough market. How did you get here? Yeah, so how far back do you want me to go? I can go back uh, to go college. Back to like, how far you want? Eighth grade. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I grew up in, born and raised in Denver, Colorado. Um, left Colorado uh, for college and went to Duke University. Uh, my truth is that I've always been one of those kids that was pretty good at school, pretty good at academics. Um, I didn't buy books and I barely went to class and I was a solid B plus student. As someone who was just trying to hang out and party, that formula worked for me. Uh, second semester senior year, I take a marketing class and it just blows my mind. It's the first time where I ever felt passionate about the subject. It was the first time where I wanted to not just own the book, but read the book and know everything about it. And so that sets me on this path that I decide I want to be a, a top marketer. And at my, in that point in time, I imagine that I want to be a CMO at a Fortune 500 company. And as I do the research, you know, the one commonality is they all have MBAs. And so the average person was going to business school at 28. I was 21, didn't want to wait. Uh, I went to work at Duke's business school so I could sit in on classes and start learning early. Um, Anyways, use that experience to um, get into business school. I get into business school at 23, go to Stanford Business School. Um, There I study courses that have all to do with marketing as well as entrepreneurship. Come out, go to Johnson & Johnson and do global marketing. Um, On the Johnson & Johnson marketing side, I loved the experience, but I felt like a lot of what I was doing was just becoming a good filter. The agencies would bring us ideas. My job was to say those five ideas aren't great, only two of them are great. Let's tweak them and then take them to the CMO who would approve them. And I didn't want to be on the filter side, I wanted to be on the idea side. So I left global marketing at Johnson & Johnson and I went to a company called Global Hue. At the time, Global Hue was the number one multicultural agency in the nation. Uh, We won multicultural agency of the decade. Uh, They were the only agency where you had a black capability, Latinx capability, and an Asian capability all in one. Um, We turned that multicultural experience into becoming the first multicultural agency to run a quote-unquote general market brand. We We ran Jeep. Um, so brought all that we knew about multiculturalism and brought it into the general market or total market, um, which really helped shape my thinking. Um, at the same time, I got tired of making commercials. So we were making Super Bowl spots with Oprah and doing really amazing work. But the work that was really exciting me was the stuff that was closer to branded entertainment. So we did a mini movie with Lenny Kravitz. Uh, this is before Beats by Dre had blown up. We put Beats headphones in Chrysler vehicles, Dodge vehicles, etc. Um, so anyway, I just started falling in love with um, branded content and branded entertainment. So from there, I started looking for opportunities there. Urban One came and recruited me to come to this company, uh, where I came on as the president of One Solution, which is their cross-platform sales and marketing company, built a branded um, entertainment studio, built a a creative agency, and then after 18 months was promoted here to take over the digital media division. And so for the last two years now, I've been running One Solution, as well as Interactive One, and that's how I got here. Did you have a job between Duke and Stanford? Did you work anywhere between? Yep. Uh, between Duke and Stanford. Yep. So between Duke and Stanford, I worked at Duke's Career Management Center at the Fuqua School of Business. And so for there, I was doing kind of two things. My core job was working with people who were hiring Fuqua students. So I worked with all the consulting firms, the McKinsey's, the Bain's, the BCG's, the investment banks, the Goldman's, the Morgan Stanley's, et cetera. And my job was to help grow their footprint at the business school, get them to hire more students. Um, it's also how I get my first internship at J&J because I've been working with those corporations. And then, like I said, on the side or like, you know, when I was playing and not doing my day job, I was sitting in on classes, um, going to events and forums and learning what the business school students were learning prior to getting into business school. I know three, uh, including yourself, um, three Duke uh, MBA graduates, black MBA graduates. Mm -hmm. 
and they're they're running digital media businesses just okay. like you. You think that's a coincidence? Uh, I do think it's a coincidence. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's anything necessarily at Duke that is feeding us into that space. But I love, first of all, the Black Duke Fuqua Alumni Network is unlike any other out there, period. Um, and so just Black Duke alums are a super powerful group. And I love hearing that that group is interested in this digital media space, which is clearly the future of media. Do you know the brother who's running She Knows? I do. Um, yeah. Aki. Yeah, yeah Aki. I know okay, Aki. Okay. I know. Who okay. else is it? Who else? Is he? Uh, Devin Johnson. Uh, 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 yeah, I believe he uh, graduated from Fuqua. He's uh, working with uh, a Le LeBron James Media Company. Okay, yeah. very good. How intentional was it for you to work at a an at scale African American media platform? It was absolutely unintentional. So yeah. when I left the, you know, when I was thinking about what was next after Global Hue, um, and again, where we had just specialized in multicultural marketing and translated that from marketing to, you know, marketing the multicultural consumers to marketing to a multicultural nation. My goal at that time was never to pigeon my, pigeonhole myself back into black or Latinx or a demo, that I wanted to stay total market, quote unquote, or general market and bring that expertise to the bigger playing field. I ultimately end up here because the opportunity was great um, and because I love loved uh, the chance that I was going to get to build my own branded content studio in a space that I really believed in, which is leveraging the power of black culture to drive general market business. All right. So people inside the game approximately two years ago, an executive said, hey, Dottavio's moving uh, to run uh, Interactive One. He's a very strong executive uh, that's coming over. People in the game know that you're a strong leader. Why haven't you had a kind of a, a public presence where, you know, uh, a broader group of people know about the stuff, the interesting stuff that you're doing? Yeah, that's a, just a phenomenal question. I'm actually glad that you asked me. Um, the reason people don't know who I am is because I've personally chosen not to be out on the forefront. And so the blessing for my career is that I was a young exec um, at a very, very young age. I was probably like a president at like 30 years old. Um, but what comes with that is people begin to critique your intentions and whether you're there to build your own career or whether you're there to do the job. And so in order so that people didn't get it twisted to make sure people knew that I was here to do the job and that I was passionate about performing and actually elevating the genius of everybody else there, um, I've personally taken a step back. Um, now you're going to see a change in 2018 as my Interactive One teams have said, we don't need you in the trenches anymore, that your version of being in the trenches is not doing the day-to-day -day operational work, but it's actually clearing a path for for us and clearing a path for the power of black culture. So in 2018, I am actively trying to change that, but I'm only changing it because I've gotten permission from my teams who are asking me to step more out into the forefront. How many employees roll up under you? Uh, it's about 160 between Interactive One and One Solution. Okay, so for the young founders and executives out there, you know, what can you share in terms about your experience running a larger organization, growing a larger organization, uh, you know, what can you share in, in terms of advice, yeah. uh, you know, for young executives out there? Yeah. The first one, I'll just jump off of what you just said, which is I think it's important that you build a public presence. You know, my team has done a really good job of educating me over the last six months to a year um, about how much that leadership presence is necessary, that the ditties and the revolts, uh, that the revolts get to walk into the room because people know Diddy, that the all dev digitals get to walk in the room because people knew Russell Simmons and that if you aren't clearing that path for your team, you're making their job harder. And so I shrunk because I was afraid of what people would think. And my advice to them would be, you shouldn't shrink for anybody and that actually your business needs you to do the opposite of shrinking, which is be big, be tall, be present, and clear the lane for the people who you're hiring um, to deliver on their jobs. When you're interviewing employees and executives, you know, kind of what are the things that you're focusing on? Yep. So the three things we focus on are, one, just performance and capability. So that's what everybody does, right? Do we think this person can do the job? The next two pieces are um, what I think might be a little bit different from us from everybody else. So the second one is culture. Everyone's going to say culture, but when I tell you that I am super 
passionate and intentional about the culture we're building and the types of people that we were bringing in to help run this company, um, it would be an understatement. So making sure that we get the right cultural fit for what we believe in and the vision and the passion and what we want to create here. And then the third one is just taste profile. So when you're in this business and you're leveraging culture to connect with audiences and to build brands, uh, you need people who have a certain taste profile that we are using data to help direct us, but it's this combination of the art and the science. And so you need people who have that art that you need people who just get the culture, know the culture, can see where the culture is and where the culture is going. And so that's the third component that uh, is really important for us. Okay, got it. Uh, so you come into Interactive One, uh, probably within 12 months or so, you acquire Bossa, Mad Noir, Hip Hop Wire. You guys execute that deal yeah. and you launch Caches. Yeah. Uh, talk about kind of coming into an organization and getting things popping right away. Yeah, um, it's been a tornado. We've been in a storm for the last two years, um, but every day we do something that we believe is gonna set us to be set us up to be successful in the future. Um, hands down, I would say that the acquisition of Bossip, Hip Hop Wire, and the Mad Noir is the best thing we did last year. Um, I would believe that I undervalued even what was in those assets, and so it was a pleasant surprised to see um, the quality of the brands, the quality of the audience, and the talent that we were able to bring along with us. So that was amazing. Um, I would also say that what I would never do again is acquire a company and launch a brand at the same time, right? Like I think brands, I always tell people, you know, you if you water off all plants, all the flowers are going to die. And so what ends up happening is you are doing an acquisition and a major brand launch and people get distracted. And so there are just a lot of things that we wanted to accomplish last year that didn't get accomplished because we're trying to do too many things at once. Um, so I believe in Cassius, super excited about where that brand is going. Um, if I could do it again, I probably would have held off on Cassius for a second while we locked in the acquisition. Um, held off on Cassius while we locked the acquisition in. Um, and then took on Cassius once things were more stable here as a company. Talk to the audience about the name Cassius. You know, how did you kind of think about uh, a new brand arriving to that name and what you're focused on now? Yes, yeah, so I love how the team got to the, to the, to the Cassius story. So uh, we were looking at names. Naming a company in 2018 is incredibly difficult. Finding something that people haven't already trademarked, et cetera, is incredibly hard. Um, and so after going down that path for a little bit, what ends up happening is the team has this insight that there have been lots of media companies named after little white boys and little white girls. Elle, Marie Claire, George, etc. But there's never been a media company named after a little black boy or a little black girl. And so because we wanted Cassius to skew male, the team went looking for male names that come out of black culture um, that would fit the North Star. And we land on Cassius because ultimately Cassius embodied everything, Cassius Clay um, embodied everything that we wanted Cassius the brand to stand for. And so the way that I would say that in the shortest way possible is to represent the best of black culture on a global stage, unapologetically, with the goal of moving culture forward. That's who Cassius Clay was, and that's what the Cassius brand is here to do. Uh, do some people perceive Cassius as a complex killer? Um, you know, complex I, media. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, for the audience. Yeah, totally understood. Um, I think that. Definitely the past, per the president before me who was talking about launching a brand, that was his intent. He wanted to launch a complex killer. Um, I don't know that I see it as, I've never talked about it in terms of being a complex killer. Um, I do believe that there's an opportunity, that complex has a monopoly on cool, and that there's an opportunity for another brand to come in and play. Um, I definitely think Cassius does that. But I also think Cassius is approaching it completely different from the way that um, complex is coming at it. I think uh, we're super focused on almost this kind of like new America mindset, yeah. right? This belief that culture was moving forward. Now in this kind of Trump America, there's a bunch of people who have historically been disenfranchised and who feel like culture is moving backwards. That's blacks, Latinx, LGBTQ, women, etc. Um, and so Cassius is not just trying to be cool, but they're trying to move culture forward for all of the people who have been marginalized, disenfranchised, etc. And so the stuff that we're going to talk about on Cassius, there's going to be some overlap with Complex, but a lot of it is going to be completely different. Would it be fair to say 
complex is a culture vulture? In our world, we would say yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think while we were creating caches, I remember looking at this clip that we circulated that um, had two young men who, two white males who were talking about, I don't know if it was Remy Ma or Nicki Minaj or something, but everything about the video and how they were talking about the culture felt inauthentic. And we were watching in social media on Twitter as black people were calling them out. And so again, that just gave us belief that there's a, that, that there's an inauthentic, inauthenticity here that's associated with complex, not all of the time, yeah. right? I think things like, um, you know, everyday struggle with Joe Budden when he was there, like those things felt authentic, but there was also a bunch of stuff that felt inauthentic to the culture. And so we saw them as being culture vultures. Um, one of the other things that I define a culture vulture is if you're going to borrow the culture or lean on the culture, what are you doing to put back into the culture and deposit into the culture? And I don't know that I believe that complex is doing anything in that world. Um, so anyways, yes, see them as culture vultures um, and believe that there's an opportunity for an authentic voice um, next beside them. Yeah, so I'm going to give you a scenario and I want kind of your, your point of view okay. in terms of how the game has worked. Okay. Uh, so with my prior company, uh, we have a brand, uh, you know, it has enough Comscore uniques in, in terms of traffic. We go to Burrell uh, at the time, uh, this may be uh, five years ago. We go to Burrell and there's a white guy managing the McDonald's account. Uh, his name is Patrick. Okay, so he's like, hey, you know, this particular uh, digital brand is, uh, is too edgy. Uh, we need something that's more brand safe. And so we launch a, a, another brand, mm -hmm. uh, a women's lifestyle brand that is brand safe. Mm -hmm. And we have like 10 million Comscore uniques. We come back to Burrell. He does not give us any money for like two years. This white guy, uh, he's with the white lady on the side. We come to Chicago. We're pitching the brands. Our stuff is growing. We have a lot of engagement. We have real organic traffic. But he locks up the McDonald's money mm. at Burrell. Mm. And I'm like, what's up with this guy? You know, what's going on? So he leaves Burrell. Mm. He goes to Complex. Mm. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, so in that world, or where you're trying to get to, is that you believe that there was some sort of relationship between him and Complex. Well, well, my experience uh, in the game is, you know, you have buyers who are looking for concert tickets. They're looking for you to take care of them. Yeah. A lot of the young buyers, they're underpaid. Yeah. They're looking for some extra something. Yeah. And so there's a lot of bias in the markets, yeah. uh, in, in, in the market. And so Complex, of course... It's venture-backed. Yep. Uh, they got investors. So when they're competing against a lot of the, the black organizations, they got a bigger wallet to bribe, essentially. Yep. Uh, so I felt that this white guy at one of the largest black agencies, he was paid for. Mm. Yeah, and, and so first I'll say, because Burrell is still a client and a partner, and they're great partners to us, and there's still a, a white guy who runs a lot of that digital business who I have a great relationship with, and I believe he comes at it from an authentic place, which, which is what you're talking about, which is when you're not doing it authentically. Um, for me, I think complex is this. Look, um, back in the days, they used to have a saying at IBM, no one ever gets fired for hiring IBM, right? So what happens is when you have people from outside the culture, CMO, etc trying to validate what is right for the culture complex is like the one that rises it's got enough scale they see it they know it so nobody black white purple or blue is going to get fired for hiring complex and then to your point complex also has the deep pockets to make sure people are taken care of meanwhile there can be very credible even brands who are more credible to the black community and more credible to black culture, but because they're not on the radar of the 55-year-old white CMO, um, don't get it. So I also think that for that guy, Patrick, to hire your previous company or to leverage your previous company is actually a risk for him as well. So on all ways, it's for him to hire Complex, it's risk-free, they've got deeper pockets, the CMO and everybody's going to be okay with it, even if it goes wrong. So everybody leads you there, even though there may be another brand or another property that's better for the culture. What about black agencies sending probably, you know, tens of millions of dollars to Complex over the years? Yeah. But when you look at, when I used to look at their comm score, they didn't have any black people. Yeah. Uh, they didn't, they, like, the comm score would come up like, less than 20% black for, yep. uh, you know, at least a few years when I was looking at it. Yep. Um, is that an issue where complex 
the culture vulture. They were taking a lot of black budgets that For black sure. media could have received. Sure. But the black agencies are getting, you know, I believe, like, you know, taken care of. Complex has a deeper wallet. They're probably executing better than the smaller That's subscale true. black organizations. And they can live with only 20% of the audience being black. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Now, I am nervous for any black agency that would play that game. I, I fundamentally believe that if you're in a if you're a black agency, you have to play the game differently than the general market agencies. So even though they're playing that and sending the money to the complex, I think that that is a short term strategy that in the long run will do them a disservice because all it's going to take is for the general market media agency to come in and say that now they own complex and now that company doesn't even need to do the media buy anymore. Um, so in the short term, I think it works for them. In the long term, I think it's problematic. I think that if you are catering to um, these small, like these uh, multicultural demos, then everything about your strategy, your execution has to be different than the way that the general market agencies would play it. And anybody who's not playing it that way, I think that um, it's a scary future for them. Yeah, I had a conversation with the CEO of Complex, uh, Rich. Rich, yeah. And we're talking about a sales partnership. And uh, you know, I was in his office uh, with his top sales guy in 2000, uh, probably 12. And I say, hey, you know, you got your stuff looks pretty good. But I noticed that on your ads, they had a big Gillette Tiger Woods campaign. They had like African-American campaigns on complex.com. And I said that, hey, but your comp score numbers are very low on uh, African-Americans. And, you know, what he told me was, you're not giving us enough credit. We have systems in place that are very sophisticated that gets the ads to the right people, yeah. black people. That's just what he has to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what they, that's, that's what they're telling the media agencies and the right. He just gave you the, the party line, right? Yeah. Um, and again, I think that's just what happens when you come, when you deal with people who are coming from outside the culture instead of inside the culture. Is DJ Vlad a culture vulture? Um, I don't actually follow him enough to have enough to talk about that. You're like, man, you're no, no, I, look, <laughs> I, I love the culture vulture conversation. And I honestly also yeah. think that we do need to call them out. Yeah. Right. I think that it is um, unfair, not right, that there are a bunch of people who are leveraging black culture for financial benefit and for commercial benefit, but at the same time, not depositing back into the culture in a positive way. Um, and to your point, taking money away from the people who are actively trying to service the people who represent that culture. So um, I'm all about calling them out. Um, so if you want to run through a bunch of names, we can, but I can only speak on the people that I 100% know and follow. Okay, so Facebook has uh, been in the uh, news a bit lately, a lot lately. Uh, related to how they handled user data, an organization the Trump campaign used, Cambridge Analytica, uh, they downloaded 50 million user uh, data from 50 million uh, user profiles. Do you think Facebook deserves uh, a lot of the pushback uh, from Republicans, from Democrats, from pretty much everybody across the, the spectrum? Do they deserve a lot of the criticism uh, that they're getting. A thousand percent. With great power comes great responsibility. You can't sit in a, in a position that Facebook is where you are taking 50% of the digital revenue, where you are owning data for hundreds of millions of consumers, um, where literally 99% of every new dollar is going to either you or Google and not take responsibility for the platform that you've built. Um, so 100%, I think that they need to own up and be accountable. So Spike Lee uh, is coming out with a show, uh, and he's framing it as kind of, you know, this kid, he's a black Zuckerberg. Uh, and, you know, I talked to some folks, and they believe, like, Zuckerberg, he's like the model. But do we want black kids to be like Zuckerberg? What is the model? The model in terms of what? In terms of, you know, he, hey, he's getting rich. He's known as a genius. He has one of the biggest companies on the planet. Uh, you know, we need more black founders, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, to be like Zuckerberg. Just putting black and Zuckerberg together as like a model. Do you have a problem with that? Um, yeah, I don't get it. So what I can what I can say yes to is do we need more black entrepreneurs building generational wealth and helping our community build wealth across the board? Absolutely. Um, when we talk about Zuckerberg as a personality and as an individual, I don't know what we're aspiring to. Yeah, I mean, 
you know that just sounds like we're aspiring to white success or white greatness or but the worst in white success and you know we know that uh early on uh you know there were uh emails about him cheating uh, his co-founder yep yep yep. uh he stole the idea from the winkle boss twins uh he doesn't seem like he has an empathy for humanity. He doesn't seem like he can right. connect to humanity. Right, but, right. Uh, you know, I, I just find a, I find it troubling that people would want to model after. It doesn't matter how much money someone has if they're going to oppress you or exploit humanity or, you know, go around destroying things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, for me, I just think, like I said, it works on a superficial level. It doesn't work once you put meat on the bones. In general, I don't want anybody aspiring to be like anybody else from a personality level. I believe that we've all got our own genius. We've all got our own magic and that our job should be to aspire to be the best versions of ourselves. Now, God willing, there's a big group of us who are doing that and creating platforms that, again, allow us to build financial wealth, family wealth, and generational wealth um, for ourselves and multiple people. But there's nothing and Mark Zuckerberg that um, I'm looking at saying I want to be like or that I'm going to recommend to these young people that work with me that I'm like, you guys need to chase that dream or that yeah. vision. I think if my son came to me and said, hey, daddy, I want to be like Mark Zuckerberg, I would sock him in his chest. <laughs> I, I, I really, I really, uh, I really do. Um, okay, so yeah. do you guys have a relationship with Facebook? Small. Small. Yeah. Have, they, have any executives kind of reached out and say, hey, we want to partner. We want to give you some of these tools that we're giving like uh, clickbait operations like BuzzFeed or some of these other folks. Uh, yeah, have absolutely. they reached out? At a high level? Absolutely. So I've got good friends over there. We work and talk. The truth is that when you are a company, even though we are at scale for the um, populations that we service, we're like a blip in the radar to a Facebook, right? So their whole thing is unless you're spending X millions of dollars with them, right, you can't get into the game where, you know, you make it onto the Facebook watch tab or, you know, you get some of the treatment that we see some of these uh, publishers getting like the the New York Times and the Complex. Um, So because... Because they don't have a, um, because they're not looking at culture in totality and they're only looking at scale, people who are not in businesses that scale as easily don't show up on their radar. And so it's been really difficult for us to get a real win with Facebook um, because in our world, you know, in their world were too small. Meanwhile, we've got 80 different websites, millions of Facebook they followers. They say they care about diversity, though. Yeah, but it's, again, it's it's superficial, yeah. right? It's superficial yeah. right now. Do they say they care about diversity? Yeah, they, they say uh, they really care about diversity. <laughs> uh, but how It's going to be hard yeah. for any diverse player to reach the numbers that Facebook wants them to reach unless they come they're, in and help They're looking them at everybody there. the same. They're exactly. like, hey, if you don't have a big enough wallet, we're not trying to... Exactly. Mess with you. Exactly. Exactly. Which literally is like you have to spend with them to get into the game, right? So it's a minimum amount of money that you have to be able to make together to be able to get into the game. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had experience. Uh, we spent millions of dollars on Facebook, but uh, they Still wouldn't support us at, at an account executive. Yep. I'm just a basic exactly. account executive. Yeah. Exactly. Because you're dealing with their their big clients are the PNGs that are spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year with them, right? Or yeah. the Walmarts or, again, some of these other publishers that just have deep, deep, deep pockets. And so unless somebody comes in and trains them to see the marketplace differently and that if you're really trying to build a platform for the new America, then you have to find a way to center some of these people who today may not be at the scale that you want, but tomorrow can get there if you play your role and do good and contribute, which kind of goes back to maybe what you were saying about Zuckerberg, which is, you know, eyes on the prize and the revenue and not necessarily really about building the most inclusive, fair system for their audience and for the people who they want to um, interact with their audiences. So the founder and CEO of a publisher, social publisher called Little Things, mm-hmm. uh, I was talking to him at an industry event and he said, look, uh, you know, we pay a very low cost per click uh, when we're marketing on Facebook uh, and we spend millions of dollars a month uh, and Facebook gives us kind of the secret ways the algorithm works Mm -hmm. uh and uh you know what are your thoughts of facebook opening up the algorithm and helping kind of social publishers uh who are spending on the platform and then if you're not spending we're not telling you how the algorithm how the algorithm works uh how could that contribute to uh exact you know exacerbating the 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 inequality problems uh, in society 
Yeah, and you know, I'm never the one to kind of use words like, but that's exactly how systematic oppression works, right? We use um, filters that don't have to do with race um, off firsthand, right, superficially, or don't have to do with demo superficially, but we use different filters, and we, so we say we're going to help social publishers, but not these publishers. But all of it is just ways to help prevent um, multicultural publishers and media companies from being as big as they truly can be. Uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I was sharing with this uh, CEO uh, that publishers were getting drunk on becoming like viral publishers, social mm -hmm. publishers. And I shared with him, you know, Zynga, uh, Facebook changed the game on them uh, early on, pretty much killed their business. Um, also, Demand Media, uh, Google mm -hmm. uh, changed the game uh, on them with their Panda algorithm update. Uh, kind of killed their business based on the traction that they had. Uh, but he was uh, very dismissive. Uh, I guess a couple of months ago, Little Things announced that they closed down. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of people were chasing becoming a social publisher. It's the hot thing. You know, BuzzFeed, they have all this traffic. But at the end of the day, if Facebook kind of blocks BuzzFeed from their platform, probably employees can't go to work the next day, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Can you talk to young, you know, publishers out there who may be drunk on social media and like, hey, nobody goes directly to a site anymore. Uh, you really just have to build your brand on these social platforms. Yep. Um, so at the time, I think that viewpoint kind of made sense, right? So what we were seeing is that social was the number one place for engagement and was also the number one traffic driver. And so it was smart for a lot of brands to come in and build social first um, platforms. A couple of watch outs, which is that social is more difficult to monetize than dot coms, right? Finding ways where you can um, insert ads, insert brands. Like you're basically betting on a sponsored model and a branded content model, right? You lose all the opportunities to just show ads, pre-roll, et cetera. Um, so recognizing that that model in and of itself is limiting from a, a business model or a financial opportunity. Um, the second thing is that viewpoint has to change now. So when you're seeing places like Google being beat up by advertisers for not being brand safe, when you see Facebook in this space that we're in where people are talking about um, regulatory um, policies that may come in place because Facebook wasn't doing their job right, like we're literally on this place where I don't actually know where culture is going, but we're in a place where things are moving. Um, and so that model might have been the smart model five, six years ago, I think for the last two or three years, if you weren't a brand who watched your traffic die because of the Facebook algorithm and didn't decide that it was imperative that you owned your own audience, if you didn't make that move in the last two or three years, you're kind of in trouble. And then I think even right now, watching what um, is getting ready to happen to Facebook, um, I just think there's more danger on the other side. I actually hope there's more danger for Facebook on the other side. <laughs> so uh, some analysts say that Facebook generates about uh, $20 of revenue a year on U.S. users, mm -hmm. uh, that translates, uh, you know, it, it could be between 600 million to a billion on yep. African-American Facebook users in the United States. Yep. Do you feel like Facebook pimps out the data so much, monetizes the data so much, monetizes the, the content so much, they take a lot out of the community uh, and they... You know, their forces, you know, they've executed well, they're crushing everything, but that has had a, a, a big impact on black media organizations. So they're like running over everything. We're trying to get this money. We got the politicians. We got everybody. We got the biggest wallet. We're crushing everything. Do you feel like they, sh they have a responsibility to black media in terms of, hey, you guys are just pretty much crushing all the, the, helping crush all the media organizations. Yep. Um, yes. So first things first, I think they should just adopt, I guess it's the doctor rule, right? Which is first rule is do no harm. And um, when you're that big, you have to be super conscious about not doing harm um, because the second you do, you get a target on your back. So for nothing else, for their strategy, just to be seen as more inclusive and to be seen as doing good in the community, I think they should have been done something. Uh, the other thing is I just think for black audiences. So their job is to serve 
serve their audiences. And again, I think um, what ends up happening is that everybody ends up looking at their audiences in mass numbers. Um, and when you do that, you lose sight of, you know, we always just say Global Hue, people end up setting on the lowest common denominator versus the highest common denominator, right? And so when you're just looking at it in terms of mass, there are a bunch of important people that fall through the cracks. And so again, just from a strategy standpoint, if your real goal was to serve your audiences in the best way possible, you would have initiatives for the black space, the Latinx space, the LGBTQ space, the, the woman space, all of that. Um, and then separately and on top of that, um, because you're making those bets on those consumers, it should lead you to the black media companies, the Latinx companies that are servicing those people in the best way, and you figuring out a way to, um, Facebook, figuring out a way to amplify those people, fortify them on their platform, and ensure that they have a strong presence. None of that we've seen from that giant. Uh, I feel like Facebook has just done a drive-by in black media, and they won't help pick up any bodies. Not our responsibility. We're, going, we're out getting this money. We got better technology. We got a bigger wallet. Uh, we won't even help pick up the bodies out here. Yeah. yeah. But what happens to, with, with forces like Facebook and Google, uh, last year it was reported that Google and Facebook take nine out of 10 new digital exactly. dollars. So these companies are coming in almost kind of monopolies. Some people call them duopoly. They're coming in doing drive-bys on media organizations. What happens to the quality of content uh, that black consumers get online? If the technology companies are kind of crushing everything, right? You can't hire a really good journalist. You can't do a lot of the things that you need to do to have quality, informative content for the people. What happens to the black content experience in the United States with these companies kind of doing drive-bys? Yep. I still think black audiences get high quality content. I think that we're in a content explosion and there's a huge opportunity for um, black and brown content creators. And so it's going to be a small few. It's going to be the Ava DuVernay's, the Shonda Rhimes, the Lena White's. Um, those types of people will benefit and that content will show up in places like Facebook and on big kind of media platforms. Um, but I do believe that the black, con the black uh, media companies are going to suffer because you and I had this conversation. A good piece of content costs what it is, no matter whether you're servicing 100% of the population or 15% of the population. And the problem is when all of our media companies that service a subset of this country, black, brown, whatever that is, don't have the pockets to produce the super high quality work, then their content doesn't raise up on the level that you'll see, you know, the stuff coming out of Fox, Atlanta, et cetera, being. And so what that means is those companies will begin to disappear. Um, and that's a problem because I think it is imperative that the people who know the story tell the story. Lena Wyeth yesterday just tweeted on Twitter like, I'm the only one who can tell, um, or a black content creator is the only one who can tell this black story and this black lesbian story because I know it, I live it, and I see the God in all of us. Um, and so it's important that as we move to a minority majority country, that we are funding those people who are the minorities to tell the most authentic version of those stories. And it can't be that the top 1% get funded. We've got to find a way to fund the top 5%, 10%, 15% of content creators because uh, their voices are needed and people are looking for that work. From a consumer and business perspective, should black people really think about, hey, you know, Facebook is taking, is making, you know, close to a billion dollars in the United States off of the engagement and data of black users. Uh, it's crushing black media organizations. They won't even pick up a phone to talk to black media organizations who are spending over a million dollars a year. They're not checking for us. Why should we hold up uh, this institution that looks very racist to me uh, uh, at a minimum black neutral? Mm. Uh you know, why should we support an organization like this? Yeah, I don't think that we have to jump out of the Facebook system, but I do think we have to do a couple of things. Um, so I'm going to give you three. Uh, the first one is I think black people need to pay attention to their privacy settings. So pay attention to what you're giving away and make sure that you're not giving away anything that you value or that you want them to have. So get your Facebook settings right. So the second one is, you know, vote with your clicks. Follow black media companies, click on their links, 
help them get those advertising dollars. It's crazy because black people always want to raise, you know, hell once the, a, a black media company is disappearing. Or last year with us, it was Roland Martin News One Now going off the air. But if you showed up for those people when they needed you, if you gave them audience, if you gave them ratings, then they wouldn't disappear. So the second one is use the Facebook engine to support your black owned media companies. And the third one is also look for alternatives. You know, here at Interactive Win One, we own Black Planet. Um, we've been in the lab tinkering with it because once Trump came into office, we figured black people were going to need a safe space. We still do about half a million people a month on Black Planet, uh, working with some kind of cool pop culture people right now to see if we can make it pop back. Um, but I think that it's also, you know, fix your privacy settings, use that space to vote and help your black media companies, and then look for the alternatives like the Black Planet um, that are going to take good care of your data, that are going to be trustworthy, and that are going to give black people those safe spaces that we all believe we need right now. Do you believe most black people specifically understand what Facebook is doing with the data, who they're giving it to? Absolutely not. No. Um, in fact, you know, I don't think there's anybody who's in the publishing game or the media game who was surprised about what came out. Yeah. We all know that that's how, you know, Facebook has been leveraging data and allowing advertisers to, to leverage data. So the big surprise is from the masses, right, who learned about it for the first time. In this very tough media and advertising environment, do you believe there needs to be more consolidation among black media organizations? I just believe that there's going to be consolidation across the you think, industry like, hey, if you as guys, well. If you guys don't uh, you know, form some type of alliances, buy Absolutely. each other, merge, 100%. you guys are going to be smoked. 100%. Are you, I mean, you're already smoked. That's exactly kind of, right. Exactly. Yeah. It's strength in numbers, right? So um, I think black agencies, Latin, Latinx agencies, they're all in trouble, right? So we've already started to see them disappear, shrink, etc. I think black media companies... Are they going to be the exact same? And so unless they can pull, if someone, your three plus, you know, you're out there fighting with your three million users, your two million users, your five million users against a complex system of 50 million, against a vice system of 80 million, those things don't matter. You and, have to do strength in numbers. And, and, and what does the, the, the buyer come back? They will play us against each other. So, right, we're, we're, we're playing for smaller buckets. Yeah. You the the market doesn't want to rationalize and scale up and work together, and so what happens to the CPMs, uh, the RPMs, the advertising rates? Where hey, you know, you got all these people. There's like 50 different publications that are subscale. I'm just gonna play these people against each other and get very low kind of hood subprime pricing. Yep. Um, so all, that's exactly where the model goes if we leave it the way that it, that, that, that it is. But I think ultimately the opportunity is to two things, to shift from selling black people to selling black culture because black culture is the hottest commodity thing out right now. People want black stories. And so we have to leverage our ability to tell black stories with black talent and black insights, but to reach the masses. So again, we get the scale and the numbers from that. Um, the second piece of it is, I think is exactly what you said, which is we have to pull together and go after the biggest dollars. So in this industry, in the media industry, black dollars or black media companies have always gotten one to 2% of the market. I think that it is stupid that black people are fighting for one to 2% of the market when we represent 14% of the population. We need to be pulling together and going after the 98% and not letting them, you know, play us off against each other. Mogul Richelieu Dennis uh, I love Rich. Yeah, uh, recently purchased Essence. Do you think there's an opportunity towards uh, that more unified, consolidated platform for you guys to combine? Absolutely. Yeah. So the day after they purchased Essence, Rich Lou was here with myself, with Alfred Liggins, my CEO, talking about how do we not make this look like competition, but how do we partner together to do something big and amazing. Again, on both sides, for our audience, so now you take something like Essence, which is owned black women, you combine it with the HelloBeautiful.com or MadameNoir.com, there's a tremendous opportunity to do something amazing for black women if we work together, but then there's also a tremendous opportunity for the money to follow from brands when, again, we stop competing and we start partnering. Yeah, uh, back in maybe 2014, I had a meeting with Alfred and uh, Tom Newman, mm -hmm. and I talked about the concept of a gate. That I think the opportunity is still there, where if the black media organizations were able to work together and the brands would need to target that audience, you put up a gate where essentially you get 70% of the market 
And you have to come through that gate to reach black people in all these touch points. So you have pricing power. Uh, and it would be very hard uh, to get to this consumer outside of Google and Facebook at scale in terms of reaching all these uh, touch points, in terms of content, branded, video, uh, social. Uh, do you think that gate opportunity is still there? Or is that naive? Is, no. Yeah. So, no, I think the gate opportunity exists. I think it's a great idea. I think that... If not done right, it'll only, again, help you capture more share of the 2% versus the 98% that's out there, right? So for the handful of brands that are actually betting on black media companies, what that type of thing would do is force them to come to whoever had partnered. And so those people will benefit and steal more share from the 2% and the people who didn't partner will lose share. Um, ultimately, I think the biggest way to do it is to figure out how to parlay that into a conversation that goes after the general market market dollars and the 98% of money that's out there. But I absolutely believe that that's a smart strategy for those brands who are um, focusing on black people. What do you got to say uh, to the point of view that, hey, you know, there's criticism of Google, Facebook, Complex. You black media companies are just not hustling right. You're not executing right. Uh, stop making excuses. Um, what, do I, you, what would you say to that? I just say that people don't get the business model. So again, yep. I come back to the fact that, you know, let's use TV. Let's pretend a good made-for-TV movie cost a million dollars. The economics of being in a black media business aren't fair to you, right? So because I'm smaller and let's say my content budget is $20 million, that means I get to make 20 really good movies, right? Where you, comp where you compare me to a vice who raised $450 million just for scripted last year alone. That means they get to make 450 quality movies, right? So what yeah. you ultimately end up saying is vice makes 450 quality movies. And because the black ones are trying to keep up from a quantity standpoint, they take their 20 million and make, you know, 40 subpar movies for $500,000. The economics of the system are wrong. And unless advertisers step up and say, we see value in companies who are telling black stories from an authentic standpoint, and we want more quality content until something like that happens like or a Facebook as you've been kind of talking about or a Google then we're always going to be in this kind of dichotomy you know here I'm trying to shift the narrative from again we don't focus on black people but we focus on black culture so let's create the best content we can with the dollars we can and go after the largest audience that we can all rooted in our black DNA our black storytelling our black insights um, for me that's the only path to hopefully get there but I definitely believe that we would get there faster if people like the Facebooks, the Googles, or some brands just stepped up and said, we get that the system is broken. We see value in telling these stories. We see value in the people who tell these stories um, coming authentically from the culture. And so we're going to force and make this happen. For the young publishers out there who says, look, I want to produce content, authentic content for the people. I don't want to compromise. I don't see an opportunity uh, in terms of just betting on Wells Fargo is going to show up for me. McDonald's are going to show up for me. I don't want to bet on these brands believing in my movement, believing in my audience. So I want to go hard at subscriptions. I want to change the game and actually get direct revenue, reoccurring revenue from subscribers. Can you talk about the developing subscriber opportunity for some of the, the publishers out there? Yeah, I think that the subscriber opportunity is a huge opportunity. I think I would be cautious um, about launching with the subscription model. I think that feels difficult. When I was at Global Hue, we had this um, amazing platform. It was the Watch the Throne tour, and we were going to be behind the scenes with Kanye, Jay-Z, etc. Um, we had a really hard, and it launched as a subscription model. We had a really hard time getting people to buy into that subscription model off jump. Um, you have to make sure that people can experience the content, you know, whether it's a freemium model or you're free for a while, and once you prove value, and you get you know a super strong loyal audience you try to flip you know 10% 20% of that audience into subscription um, but I believe in generating consumer revenue I think that's the future you can't rely on advertisers you just can't trust them like that um, so I believe you have to go after this consumer revenue I believe that subscriptions make sense I just don't believe that you can assume that because you made one piece of great content or one great web series or anything like that that people are just gonna hand you over their credit cards yes yeah, so so are you saying like, hey, you got to just make sure 
that your content, you know, it gets to the level where, you know, users get charged for it. High quality content that is done consistently. Like you've got to prove that to people before they're willing to hang, you know, to hand over their credit cards and pay. What African-American focused digital brand you think is in the best position to start charging like a three ninety nine subscription for the We content? are, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of who else I would say besides us. Um, you know, this year we're definitely going to play with a subscription model um, on Bossip. You know, the Bossip brand has a true, loyal, hardcore following. Um, to my earlier point, they've been producing great content consistently for the last, I don't know, 10, 12 years. And so now we see that opportunity. You know, I don't know that I believe that anybody else has the type of loyal following times the scale for them to be able to launch a subscription model that's going to be really meaningful to them. Uh, you think it seems like popular culture uh, would be a tough subscription play as yeah. opposed to like news, yeah. politics. Do you agree it would be a lot tougher in, in the kind of the, the popular culture space to charge for a subscription? Yeah, because there's so much popular culture news out there. People have a million other places to get it versus paying three ninety nine for yours. So I think that there's two things you have to do. One, you have to make sure that your spin on pop culture is so valuable that people will pay for it. But then the other thing we're doing is you just have to talk to your audience to see where they see value. You know, so we're playing with everything from looking at is it a new design experience is it you know I'm always a fan of American Express the benefits of membership right so how do you develop a membership package for the boss up audience that goes beyond the dot-com that's valuable for them um, and then also we're just in the world of influencers so we're going to explore a pathway of you know our most loyal users our true boss up ambassadors like how do we celebrate them and is that worth kind of a subscription model for them so we're going to play with a bunch of different pathways because we do agree that pop culture news is everywhere and you know you got to do something different if you're going to get people to pay you 99 cents or 3.99 a month all right uh take the audience uh to church all right uh, church. and explain to you know some publishers who are kind of new in the game they want to launch media properties and they think there's black advertising waiting for them don't do it <laughs> uh, and, and, and can you explain to them what total market is yeah and hey black budgets are, are going away can you can you talk to that yeah um so we launched caches last year to be honest i'm telling my team like i would never launch another new brand in this day and age building a new media property forget black brown white or purple is just difficult in 2018. if you weren't around in 2012 to 2015 where facebook was letting everybody build audience for free you've essentially missed that boat and i feel like unless you got a 10 million dollar marketing budget to come out and let people know that you're there you're in the danger zone so First of all, just getting in the game and building audience on your own is going to be incredibly difficult. You know, we've got 20 million uniques on our digital system, a TV station, radio stations to help us do that. Um, but if you're not in that position and don't have that assets, I think it's a very scary place to be. Um, also, winning where you have to win to be a great digital publisher, which means video is a very expensive proposition. Again, Complex launched with video 20, I mean, five years ago with a $20 million video investment. Vice raised $450 million for video last year. Like video is where the game is at. And unless you can do that well, I think it's also scary. Then fast forward to the piece where you're talking about, which is on the other side of build, let's say you've built that audience successfully. I keep coming back to the stat that only 2% of advertising dollars make it to targeted black media platforms. So if you're jumping into this, rule number one in terms of being an entrepreneur is you pick good markets. I would never say that the best market is the market that's only capturing 2% of the available dollars where you're fighting with incumbents who have been there for a long time who are also struggling to figure it out. Um, so anyways, I just don't think it's the smartest play. I think that there's a lot of opportunity in this digital media space. Um, I think that anybody who's a digital media publisher in the black space that's only looking to target black people uh, is going to be in for unfortunately like a very disappointing surprise okay church uh, just kidding <laughs> uh special thanks to detavio samuels the president of interactive one here's a brother who's leading an organization with over 30 million dollars of digital revenue 
growing that digital revenue right now you could check them out on uh, twitter uh you want to give the audience your twitter handle yeah everything for me is at detavio d-e-t-a-v-i-o so at detavio on twitter instagram and facebook want to say special shout out to my brother jamarlin it's been such an honor to get to know you over the past um year i appreciate you for allowing me to be on your platform um and make sure you don't put on anything that's gonna get me fired all right thanks let's go we still going hard <laughs> 